We're in Mark chapter 5 as we continue our study through this uh, gospel, and what we are going to find this morning is a story. We love stories. Uh, We love stories so much that we read novels and watch movies. We have a few of our own stories, stories of events that have happened in our lives that are for one reason or another, so memorable that we keep on telling them. You can probably think of five or ten events in your life that you consistently tell other people, even though sometimes you know you've already told them, and they tell you you've already told them, and you keep telling it anyway. It might be a unique experience that no one else has had the opportunity to experience, but you have. It might be a a funny event that happened to you or someone in your family, and you just enjoy telling it over and over again. The point is that when these things happen in our lives, they are remembered and they are retold for the rest of our lives. And though the details of your stories and mine are certainly different, there are some common elements. A good story has a dynamic plot. It's got a storyline that goes throughout, and sometimes there are twists and turns, surprises along the way that keep us interested in the story itself. Sometimes stories have famous or eccentric characters, people we bump into that we never expect we're going to bump into, but we get the opportunity to meet them, or people that are just unique and somewhat different than everybody else, and therefore they are memorable. Sometimes a good story includes a radical transformation. That is an event happens that is so significant that from that day forward, the individual is changed, usually for the better, sadly, sometimes for the worse, but the the change is so evident it all goes back to that one episode, uh, leading the person to a renewed sense of purpose sometimes, a new mission in life, all flowing from that radical transformation. We are going to see all of that today in the story that we are looking at from Mark chapter 5. A story that is one of the most memorable and yet bizarre in all of the New Testament. We are going to meet a man today that, frankly, we would rather not meet. A man that we do not understand, and where we living in that time would have no real desire to try to understand. We would not want to be with him. We would not want to be seen with him. We probably wouldn't help him. I mean, this is the kind of man with whom we would never make eye contact, but we would silently cross on the other side of the street so as not to get involved in his life at all. We would certainly talk about him, but we probably wouldn't talk to him. I had a man somewhat like this who lived next door to me when I was in seminary. He was a veteran, and something had happened in his time at war, and he had an injury. The rumor was it was a brain injury of sorts, and so he was, he was a unique character. He did not come out of his house very often. He certainly did not keep up his yard as the other homes in the neighborhood did. He was the subject of much discussion in our neighborhood, and silently most people feared him. At one point, he added a second story to his house, but failed to put any stairs to that second story. And so literally, there was a long extension aluminum ladder out the back of one of the windows in the house, and that is how he came and went to the upstairs of his house. So you could always hear when he was coming and going with the shaking of that aluminum ladder. I tried to engage him in conversation a time or two, but never got very far. He simply wanted to be left alone and not interact with anybody else. Today from Mark chapter 5, we are going to read a memorable story 
A story that includes all of the elements that I have just mentioned a moment ago, and along the way, we are going to discover that there are some similarities to your own story. Now, you're not going to believe me when we first read it, because when we first read it, you're going to think, there is nothing in this story that has any semblance to what's going on in my life, but there are some similarities, especially if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, because there is application here for every disciple of Christ. So look with me in Mark chapter 5, we'll beginning in verse 1. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerizines, and when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him any more, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying and cutting, crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? And he replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep slope into the sea and drowned in the sea. Verse 14, the herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from that, their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, go, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he had had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. Well, as I said, every good story has characters involved in the story. Sometimes those characters are famous, and sometimes those characters are eccentric, and sometimes it is both. We certainly have both in this story. We have a famous character. His name is Jesus. Most of us know him quite well. And then we have an eccentric character whose name is not named He is eccentric because of his actions, and he is possessed by a demon. And this eccentric character is the reason we remember this story. We tend to think of him as the main character in this drama, but in reality, Jesus is the main character, and in fact, Jesus is always the main character throughout Scripture. And certainly that is true here because here his power, his authority, and his person are once again on display. But hang on to all of that for a moment. We'll come back to it. Right now, I want to look at this eccentric character who is possessed by demons. To say that this man has problems and is in a desperate and serious situation is certainly 
an understatement. It is, in fact, one of the most lamentable stories of human wretchedness in all of the Bible. This man's needs crosses all of the various lines. He has physical needs. He has psychological needs. He has emotional needs, and he has spiritual needs as well. He is truly in a pathetic condition, and one might conclude that it is so pathetic he is beyond hope. This is the kind of guy that we might say, don't bother trying to minister to him. There's nothing that can be done. There's nothing that can change him. Just leave him alone. Sadly, this man is socially isolated. He is forced to live outside of the town and to live among the dead. Graveyards are fascinating places, at least I think so sometimes. Tracy and I have stumbled upon several in the Smoky Mountains on some of our hikes. Our first church had a cemetery right outside of my office, and so there were times when, when I needed a break from studying on a nice day that I would go out there and walk among the tombs and, and look at the names and the dates and think back uh, as to who these people were and what kind of life they had. It was fascinating to me, but it was sad at the same time because oftentimes those tombs were the tombs of little babies, especially years ago where many families lost children regularly, and so there were a lot of those. But most of us, as fascinating as we might think that is sometimes, we do not want to be in a cemetery at night. Even though we know nothing's going to happen to us, it's still sort of scary. It's just creepy to be out there among the dead in the dark. But that's exactly what this man is doing. It's probably more of a cave-like structure, not the cemetery that we know of. He's living among these caves where they have buried their dead. And here we find already a spiritual analogy. Those who do not know Christ are dead even while living, though they may not know it. So no one wanted anything to do with him, and therefore he lived alone and isolated. And part of the reason that he was socially isolated was because he was physically uncontrollable. They had tried in vain to chain him and to shackle him, but every time they did so, his strength enabled him to break those chains. His physical strength did not come from numerous trips to the gym. It came from the demon possession that was inside of him. And this whole description reads more like something of a wild animal than a human being. In fact, the word subdue in verse 4 is used in James to refer to wild beasts. So this man, though we know him as a man, comes across much more like a wild beast. And it would be one thing if he quietly lived alone among the tombs and was not bothering anybody, but he was also emotionally expressive. He was constantly crying out and shrieking. He would not remain silent. Night and day, they heard these shrieks of terror from this man. Now, most of us have experienced a crying infant on a plane, and at first, it's not a problem. At first, you try your best to help the poor mother who is there with a crying baby by making faces at the baby and trying to help out. But six hours over the ocean later, and the baby's still crying, it is no longer a cute situation. You've had enough of it. That's the way it goes sometimes with that constant call or shrieking, and that's what this man was doing. We had a, a nice lady move across the street from us about a year and a half ago. But this nice lady, and I hope she's not visiting this Sunday, but this nice lady brought with her a not-so-nice dog. And the reason that dog is not so nice, he's in the backyard most of the time, fenced in, 
But every time someone walks down the street or a car comes by, that dog barks. And you say, well, of course, that's what dogs do. But you don't understand. This dog's bark is unlike any bark I've ever heard from a dog. It's a shriek. When, when the dog first came over there, we actually thought there was a dog fight going on and a life and death struggle. And we looked outside to see what was going on with this dog. And sadly, we learned that that's just the way he sounds. And since my office is at the front of our house, I hear that dog day and night anytime someone walks down our street. Now, hear me clearly. Nobody in our family would ever harm a dog, but we've talked about it. (laughs) We've talked about the peace that might come if that dog no longer lived across the street because of its crying out. And this man is socially isolated, and he's emotionally expressive. He's continually shrieking and crying out, and no doubt the townspeople have had enough of it. They are afraid of him, and that is why they have tried in vain to chain him. They don't know what he's about or what he is capable of doing, and therefore they have put him outside of town. And there he is also personally abusive. He's cutting himself with stones, either in an attempt to get the demons out of him himself or perhaps an attempt to end his life and therefore his torment. But he was not nearly powerful enough to exercise the demons on his own. And so he seems destined to live a life of filth, a life of loneliness, a life of terror and uncleanness. There is so much about this story that would have said to a first century Jew, unclean. Everything here is unclean with this man. He was destined to live this kind of life until that is one day Jesus in a boat lands on the shore and his life is changed forever. Now, while I realize there are more characters in this story that we could talk about, we need to move on to the dramatic plot line, the storyline of the story itself. And as we do so, we'll look at some of those other characters. You will remember from two weeks ago that we had left Jesus in a boat He had been on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, and he had gotten in a boat with his disciples either to escape the crowds or to expand his ministry or both. And during that voyage across the sea, which would normally take about two hours, he had gone to sleep, and then a great storm arose. And the disciples come to Jesus, and they say, don't you care that we are perishing? And he rises, and he calms the storm, the waves and the winds cease. And then the disciples say, who then is this that even the winds and the waves obey him? They are wondering who they are in the boat with, and they are about to see another powerful lesson, another powerful story that in part answers that question. Who then is this that can calm a storm at sea? Who then is this that can cast out a demon and radically transform a man? There are some similarities between these two stories. Uh, In the the New Testament times, the the sea was thought to be a place of evil. They They didn't understand it. And so they were often scared of the sea, especially when a storm arose on it. And so for Jesus to calm the storm in chapter 4 and then turn around and cast down a demon in chapter 5, there are some similarities here. So now we are on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee in what is modern-day Jordan, 
And we are in all likelihood about 22 miles or so north of the current capital of Jordan, the city of Ammon. There is some debate as to exactly where this event occurred because there there are some differences in spelling. There are some textural variants here between this and the other Gospels uh, and some of the manuscripts. My my translation, verse 1, says Gerasenes. Some of your translations, or at least in a footnote, may say Gergesenes. And then there is a third option, Gadarenes. Gerasa was a city that was about 37 miles inland. Far too far for me to run, and certainly far too far for these pigs to run into the sea. So we know we're not at Gergesa, 37 miles inland. We are probably on a, another city or at another city, or at least in that region, but we are certainly right on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. For when Jesus gets out of the boat, immediately this man comes up to him. Though it is not the man he is going to be dealing with, it is the demons within him. And when this man arrives... Verse 6 tells us that he bowed at the feet of Jesus. This is normally, as you know, an act of worship, but it is certainly not in this case. Sometimes it is a sign of respect, even as it is in some cultures and countries around the world to this day. But in this instance, it is an admission of authority and superiority. The demons knew they were no match for Jesus. When the demonic meets the divine, There is only one outcome. It is no contest, and they know it. And they also know his name. We've talked about this before, but at this stage of the ministry of Jesus, the demons he encounters know more about who he is than his very own disciples do. They cry out, Jesus, what are you going to do with us, you son of the most high God, which is an accurate and divine name? It was thought that by using the name of the opponent, you gained mastery or power over them, but that is not going to be the case here. Again, this doesn't mean that they knew Jesus in the sense of salvation. They simply knew who He was and the power and authority that He possessed. Again, James reminds us, you believe in one God, you do well. The demons believe and they tremble. The demons have an accurate understanding of who Jesus is, and they tremble in His presence. And what James said is what we're seeing pictured here. These demons are bowing at the feet of Jesus because they understand who He is and the power He possesses. And so Jesus asked them their name or His name. Now, not because He didn't know the name, but He asked the name to demonstrate His power over it. Legion is their answer, and this is a personal name perhaps. Maybe it's an arrogant boast of how many demons there were, or maybe they were sidestepping the issue altogether and refusing to give their name. A legion was the largest of a Roman troop unit, numbering nearly 6,000 soldiers. There's only one other occurrence in all of the Scriptures of this word, and you are familiar with where it is found. It is in the garden where Jesus is about to be arrested, and Peter comes to his defense, drawing his sword and cutting off the ear of one of the uh, soldiers who has come to arrest him, and Jesus tells him to put the sword back up and says to Peter, don't you understand that I could call 12 legions of angels to my defense if that's what I wanted to do? There was a song some years ago that was somewhat popular in Christian circles. It was called 10,000 Angels. He could have called 10,000 angels. But instead, he died alone for you and me. 
fact of the matter is he could have called 72,000 angels. That's what 12 legions times 6 would be, but I guess the author of that song didn't feel like that flowed as well as 10,000 did. At any rate, this story is simply means that the man was possessed by many demons, not just one or two. And recognizing the power and authority of Jesus, they beg and plead for mercy. And this is one of those elements that makes this such a memorable story. These mighty demons are begging for their own lives. They do not want to be cast out of the region. Luke tells us that they don't want to be cast into the abyss. And the abyss was a, spiritual, a place of spiritual confinement prior to eternal punishment. Instead, they request permission to be cast into a herd of some 2,000 pigs who are feeding nearby. And another twist in the story, Jesus grants them permission. He tells them indeed that they can go in the pigs and that is what they do. Now, the fact that the pigs are here reminds us that we are indeed not in Jewish territory. We are in Gentile land. And upon entering the pigs, they are frightened and tormented, and they head down the slope into the Sea of Galilee where they all drown, and presumably the unclean spirits drown along with them. Now, there are some who have a moral dilemma with all of this. Why would Jesus allow the destruction of such a large number of animals? It's actually only one of what we might call two destructive miracles in the ministry of Jesus, the other being the, the, the fig tree, the withering of the fig tree, where he's coming back and forth to Jerusalem, and there's no food, fruit on the fig tree, and so he curses it, and it is said that it would never have fruit again. So why would he do this here? Well, the fate of the pigs shows the real intent of the demons. Their desire is to destroy. I mean, isn't that what Peter tells us? Your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour, that is, destroy. There are other options as well that can help us answer this. One might be that it was a better alternative. If he just cast the demons out of this man, they might wind up in someone else, and the torment would go on. But instead, he lets them go into the pigs, and they are drowned. It could be that these pigs are unclean. We know that much. In the eyes of the Jews, pigs were unclean. So what better place for unclean spirits to go than into unclean animals? Some even try to argue that perhaps these were Jews who were the owners of these pigs, and this was divine punishment for them keeping unclean animals. But I can't imagine that any Jew in that area would have owned pigs. I think the major point here is that this was a visual representation of what he was doing to the demons. So visual that the people who saw it would never forget. So visual that we are still talking about it thousands of years later. And it is what makes it such a memorable story. Even if we are concerned about the amount of bacon and barbecue that has been lost. Well, that's actually the end of the story. But you know that most stories have sort of an aftermath. That is, they have reaction from the people around. And that's what we see here as well. We see, first of all, the radical transformation in the life of this unnamed man. And this is where the similarities are found. Again, you might be saying saying to yourself, he said there were similarities, but there's nothing in this story that seems similar to me. And yet there is if you are a follower of Christ. Because this is a picture of what genuine salvation looks like. Though your own story may not be as dramatic And though it may not contain all of the elements, it certainly contains some of them. Predictably, the herdsmen rush out into the countryside and into the city to tell people what has happened. And predictably as well, 
the people come out to see for themselves. This is certainly not an everyday occurrence. This is a once-in-a-lifetime event, and so they are coming out to see with their own eyes. And what they see is the radical transformation of the man who had previously been deranged and dwelling among the tombs, and they all knew it. But he was deranged no longer. He is now sitting there quietly. You remember before, he's acting crazy like a wild beast, shrieking and crying out, and now he's sitting there quietly. The text tells us he is now clothed. Presumably before, he was not. He is now in his right mind, no longer insane. And one can hardly imagine a greater and more complete transformation than what we see in this particular story. And as a result, they beg Jesus to leave their region. Again, you remember the story from two weeks ago? After Jesus calms the, the storm, we made the point that the disciples were more afraid after the storm of who they were in the boat with than the storm that was outside of the boat prior. When they saw the power that Jesus had, they were more afraid of being in his presence than they were of the storm. And that's the same thing we see here. The crowd are now afraid because of the power and authority that they have seen in Jesus, far more afraid than of the demon-possessed man that they had tried to chain and shackle years before. Now, many have focused on the enormous loss of 2,000 pigs as a reason why they wanted him gone. Perhaps they cared more about their finances than they did their faith. This was indeed a tremendous and enormous economic catastrophe And maybe they just cared more about economics, and certainly we still have that problem today. Or maybe they cared more about their finances than they did the change that they saw in front of them. You know, sometimes when we do an event, we will have people say, you know what, if if just one person comes to faith in Christ, it will all be worth it. If we could see one person saved, then all of the effort, all of the money spent on this event will have been worth it. The crowd here is not in agreement with that kind of thinking. They're seeing the change of the one man, but they want Jesus gone because they are afraid of what he might do. And so although they do not pick up stones to stone him, and although they do not openly persecute him, they beg him to leave, and he complies and begins to get in the boat and go back across the sea. But make no mistake about it, this is a picture of salvation. This is not primarily or merely an exorcism This is a picture of a man who is radically changed because Jesus has changed him. Paul writes, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, everything is now new. And what Paul wrote in a didactic or teaching manner, we see in a pictorial manner in front of us with this man. That verse in 2 Corinthians describes what we are seeing here and the power of Jesus Christ on display to make a new creation. And your story, if you are in that same category, that is, you are a believer in Jesus Christ, though again the details might be different and the drama perhaps not as dramatic, but the power of Christ has delivered you from the enemy as well. It has taken you from the domain of darkness and translated you into the kingdom of His dear Son. It has unshackled you from the the confines of sin and released you to love and serve Christ. Every salvation story is a story of radical transformation by the power of Jesus. We need to understand that and therefore be grateful for it. 
The last thing I want you to see in this memorable story is the renewed purpose that follows the radical transformation. While everyone else wanted him to leave, and he does just that, this new creature, the man whom we don't even know his name, now says he wants to be with Jesus. Verse 18, I want to be with you. Now, some of your translations might say, I I want to go with you, or he wanted to accompany Jesus. But the ESV gets it right here. Literally, it is to be with him. And the reason I make that distinction is because we've already talked about it. The first thing that a disciple wants to do is to be with Jesus. We often major on the obedience and on the service, but we must not forget that first and foremost, we must be with Jesus, and the obedience and the service flow out of our spending time with him. And we've seen that already in Mark, and we'll no doubt see it again. Here is genuine discipleship, a desire to be with Jesus, and ultimately a desire to obey and serve as a result. So this is salvation. Jesus has radically transformed this man, and this is now discipleship. He wants to be with Jesus, and those two things always go together. They are never separated. Those who are genuinely saved are disciples of Jesus Christ, and therefore there is a desire to be with Him. But in this case, Jesus denies the request. It's another odd twist in this story. I mean, why did He grant the permission of the demons to go in the pigs and now deny this man's request to be with Him? Perhaps it has something to do with a Gentile traveling with his party as he goes back across the sea into Jewish territory, perhaps it would have been a stumbling block in his mission. But regardless of the reason, he does not allow the man to go with him. Instead, he says, for the man to go back home and to begin telling what Jesus has done for him and the mercy that has been bestowed on him. He gives the man an evangelistic assignment. And what better place to share his story than where everyone knew what he used to be. Everyone knew his background. Everyone knew who he was. They can clearly see the difference. What better place to tell what Jesus had done and the mercy that had been shown than in this area where everyone knew what he used to be. It is a reminder that evangelism begins at home. And that's exactly what he does, proclaiming in the Decapolis to the amazement of all who heard. Now, Decapolis was a loose connection of ten cities that the Roman general Pompey had released from Jewish domination in 63 B.C. And this group of ten cities now has its very own missionary among them. Jesus might be leaving, but He's not leaving them without a witness. He's sending this changed man to tell the story of who Jesus is and what He had done for them. Perhaps there's no need for silence in this case. There's no messianic secret here. We've talked about the fact that Jesus has previously said, don't tell anyone who I am during these early stages of his ministry for fear that there would be misunderstandings. But in this Gentile region, perhaps that's no longer necessary. We often call Paul the apostle to the Gentiles, and that is true, and it is what the New Testament says. But what we find here is the first missionary to the Gentiles. This man who we would have given up on, this man who we would have said is hopeless, is now commissioned by Christ to be the first missionary to the Gentiles. He has gone from trying to kill himself with stones to gladly sharing what Jesus has done and the mercy that he has received. 
The radical transformation has led to a renewed purpose for living. Salvation leads to gratitude. Gratitude means glorifying God, and glorifying God means sharing the story. Again, this is salvation and discipleship. This is not just a story about a man who had some demons and he got released from them. This is a picture of your life and mine in salvation and discipleship. Now, it is indeed a memorable story, but we need to remember it for the right reasons. Oftentimes, the focus is on the demons and the questions that, bring, uh, that flow from that. Some disbelieve demons altogether. They say they don't exist. Well, Jesus didn't believe that because he often encountered them. Others go to the opposite extreme, and they are fixated on demons with an unhealthy obsession concerning them, and neither one of these options is biblical. Demons do exist, and they are powerful spiritual beings, but not nearly as powerful as God as we've seen in this story. The other big question that often comes up is this, can a believer be possessed by a demon? And the answer is absolutely not. We are already possessed. We are possessed by the Holy Spirit of God, and therefore we cannot be possessed by a demon. We have the Holy Spirit living within us, and therefore there is no room for another. But if you leave here talking and thinking about the demons or the pigs, you've misunderstood the story. Because these are not the primary elements of the story. It may be the reason we remember the story, but it is not the primary reason we've studied this story so we know more about demons or we mourn the loss of 2,000 pigs. The story is about Jesus and his power, and his authority, and his person over the demonic world in partial answer to the question disciples asked, who then is this that even the winds and the waves obey him? Who then is this that the demons must flee at his command? The question then becomes, what about you? Have you seen and bowed to the authority and power of Jesus not just over creation or not just over the spiritual world, but over you? Have you bowed and confessed Him as the Son of God? Have you embraced His salvation and responded with gratitude? And because you are so grateful about it, have you told others of what Jesus has done for you and the mercy that He has shown? Now, if you haven't done any of that, I want you to think about this. If Jesus can radically transform this man, turning him from a demon-possessed man with every problem imaginable to the first missionary to the Gentile world, if Jesus can change him, then Jesus can change you. Because I very seriously doubt you have as many problems as this man had. So if he can radically transform him, he can do the same in your life if you will repent of your sins and by faith trust in him. Let's pray.